this is episode two of our conversation about open scholarship. I am very fortunate today to be here with Mita. Mita Williams, will you tell us a little bit about what you do and your relationship to open scholarship, Mita? I can do that. Uh, my name is Mita Williams. I am the scholarly publications librarian at the Letty Library at the University of Windsor. Um, I should say that I'm normally the scholarly publications librarian, um, but I'm currently on sabbatical, so um, that is being handled by someone else quite well at the moment. Um, my title used to be scholarly communications librarian, but I asked to kind of tweak the title because uh, not everyone, uh, very few people outside of library land uh, knows what a, a skull commie is. So uh, <laughs> publications a little bit more understandable. And uh, I've been working at the Letty Library since like 1999. I've worn lots of hats. Um, and I'm also the head of the information services department there. Wow. So uh, we're talking about open scholarship here. I'm trying to get my head around what counts as open scholarship and how uh, to use Lenandler's phrase, how we can demonstrate it to other people. So one of the challenges that we run into as people who, who do open scholarship is that when we try to talk to other people who are open scholars about it, it's no problem. Blah, 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 I did this thing and whatever else, we're all fine with it. But when we actually try to translate to other people, whether it's because we're trying to suggest that open scholarship is a good approach or we're trying to, you know, get promoted or file our tenure applications or whatever else, it can be really, really difficult to, to actually communicate that. So, because I would say, firstly, that I don't think there's really standard agreement on what open scholarship even is. So maybe we start there. For you, Mita, what do you think open scholarship is? So uh, I would say that open scholarship also, it's very grounded in, who, in the work that I do. So I think of open scholarship as open access scholarship, um, the whole ecosystem though. So it's uh, not just the, the texts and the other material that's available online, that's free for the reader, um, that's licensed so that other people can copy it and preserve it or use it. Um, I think of it as, as sort of like, because I'm kind of like uh, the role I play is kind of gardener. So I think very much in terms of like all the root systems, all of the, all the ways that uh, the systems that support that, all that research um, and the work that's available, uh, like all the, all the OJS systems, the open journal systems, the, 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 DOIs that keep track of articles, uh, ORCID that helps, uh, you know, disambiguate authors, all of those ways, open citations so that people can discover things. So that's where in my particular focus, I'm, that's where the more of my work does is like sort of in the ground, in the dirt, mm -hmm. um, building those connections and nurturing them. Um, but that's, that's what I generally think of when I, when I think of open scholarship. So when you say that whole ecosystem, does that start from data collection to the sort of meandering conversations of scholars before the research actually starts, or is it only at the publication point? So libraries are in this very, we're always like evolving. Um, we're always like contentious spaces. We're always like moot, like changing as the needs of our, of our, our, our essentially the, the patrons who support us. And so originally I, you could almost make the case that, you know, libraries generally were like, we would only carry like the, the end artifacts, right. you know, we would just have the books okay. and maybe an archive would have, you know, the rough drafts, um, but very much so libraries of, especially academic libraries have really embraced sort of supporting the whole process 
right. you know, like right down from like, you know, um, not just the preprints, but the data, data preservation, um, visualizations, and that and even like the you know we host the conference papers where first drafts of these papers come up so we're again these are very much um <laughs> sorry my cat is eating my sunflower seeds and that's not good so i'm gonna move her uh, <laughs> um yeah so i think that's where um yeah the support the support as i said it's it's that's what i think of and what i think in terms of the ecosystem so um, I'm going to push uh, up against the boundaries of that to try to get a sense of, of where this thing stops, because I'm assuming there's a point beyond which you're saying that it's no longer scholarship. Um, so, and we talked a little bit about this beforehand, but if I am, uh, let's say I'm playtesting a model and I post it on Twitter and there's a bunch of conversations that happen there between a variety of other scholars, does that end up being open scholarship? Or if it isn't, what is it? Right. So in terms of scholarship, there's, okay, so that's an interesting question because in some ways, if it's on Twitter, um, in the moment as, uh, as an author, you're working through an idea, you're contributing it, you're having conversations with other people, um, you're generating, you know, they're giving you essentially sort of peer review, you're bouncing off ideas, things are coming together. That's, scholarship in a way, but the challenge becomes um, how does it integrate into the longer conversation in that 10 years from now, how is somebody going to find it and make sense of that? And so this is sort of the longer view as a librarian in terms of like scholarship in, in that uh, unless work is actively sort of being maintained and preserved and built upon, um, is it ephemera? And that's, you know, like it's, it's useful ephemera, but as like, as a, as an artifact, it, it is very fragile. And there are some amazing people who are working in web archiving and they're collecting and that work, if it's almost like, unless you need to recognize, it needs to be recognized as something that's valuable in the moment and collected in the moment. And held on to. Uh, and I, in many ways, I, I think of those efforts as, as, as what makes it scholarship. It's not to say that it's not valuable, but if it disappears immediately afterwards, that's, that to me is a, is a huge, is a, it's a huge issue. And this is, I say this as somebody who uh, uh, recently uh, erased 16,000 of my own tweets from the internet. So I'm uh, very cognizant of, uh, of uh, the ephemera of tweets. So talk to me more about this, this idea of ephemera, because clearly you have a very specific meaning of it. I mean, it's ephemeral, so it goes away. And I, I get the general sense of the word, but I get a feeling that there's a librarian-y sense of the word here that those of us who are outside of uh, your field might not get our 100% our minds around. Um, yeah, I don't know whether it's, whether I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's particularly defined. I remember when I went to library school, I was, uh, and there, again, this was, you know, some time ago. So I was fascinated with like zines and my final project was all about zine collecting. And I remember my library school professor said, well, is the, isn't this just ephemera? And 
in time, it's been recognized that these sort of paper documents have been, you know, zines have been culturally really important and they've been collected and then they've been added to archives and they've been made found, like been finding aids so other people can use it and build upon it. So I, I think what, what I'm saying is that the, the work, I don't, I didn't mean to go completely on this like sidetrack of like, you know, uh, of ephemera, because I think the conversations that happen on Twitter, I, I'm on Twitter, I use it quite a bit. I think it's, it's been essential in, it's in helping people connect directly to writers, correctly to journalists, you know, it, in, and make an end round ar around publications themselves. And they're really important and they can be held. And I'm not saying that those conversations, um, are not part of the scholarly communication. Um, but I guess there's, a, there's always a degree of formality. And part of the challenge of making those sort of uh, collections seen is to make sure that they can, they can be seen and they have to be preserved. I mean, that's fascinating to me because the vast majority of research can't be seen because it's behind a wall. Um, so, uh, yeah, but, no, that's true. That's just behind paywall. So that's really interesting because this dovetails with the conversation I had last week with Lynn Andler about how we can go through the processes of communicating with other people and formalizing in such a way that they can become something that is approachable by somebody else. So one of the problems, if you run across any kind of communication, maybe we'll move away from Twitter for a second and assume this is happening on a, on a back channel, a discourse, uh, a discord back channel. Hmm. So discord, um, uh, things like Slack and discord, these back channels are becoming increasingly the way that scholars communicate. Actually, everybody communicates in this sort of protected wall, which still allows you to select who you talk with. I've been in some very, very rich communications in those backgrounds but you're gonna be hard pressed to cite one as there's no direct link to the thing. Yes. Um, so if we took that example instead of Twitter, how would we pull, like what would it look like to turn that scholarly discussion into something that you could report back and talk about as your participation in a scholarly community? Yep. So I think I've been thinking about this a bit because I did hear your previous conversation and I was thinking about okay, what are these, what are the artifacts of scholarship that that sort of that that are essential, that that we rely on, that that essentially give, you know, that's happening, that that just needs to be uh, that should be recognized. And one of the things that I thought of, um, there was a couple of articles that I've read and I've, I've bookmarked safely away. Um, about uh, before I'll get to the before I get to like the sort of the discord servers I'll just talk about like even within scholarship we don't even recognize the people who dedicate time generally for code who make um, you know coding libraries that help people process scientific you know R libraries or Python libraries or um, some of some of the most important tools that other scientists use are um, that work is generally has been understood as largely being sometimes devalued. They don't understand um, what does it mean to have this many repositories, you know, people have cloned this repository this many ways. And so one of the things that I've been fascinated with is um, uh, the ORCID profile. So the ORCID profile, it 
it, it's it's so much more complex than people understand because when Orchid tries to explain itself, it's like it's like we, we're a disambiguation service. So if your name is John Smith, you don't have to worry about other John Smiths. Um, but it's so much richer. And one of the things that I love about it is that it's really trying to answer some of these questions, like how do you recognize performance? How do you recognize creative work? How do you recognize peer review? How do you recognize contributions that are essential to a scholar, like a membership? And one of the things that ORCID does, um, I can't, for example, if I'm a a member of a particular organization, um, ORCID prevents me from uh, citing that I've done peer review, for example, for a particular membership organization. But that membership organization can work backwards and associate the work that I've done to me. Um, and that has not really well been well explored. So the, all of these ideas of, now getting back to your server idea. So the idea is that you're having these conversations um, in many ways, what is the outcome from these conversations? Is it an event? Is it a conference? Is it, um, it still relies that those conversations generally have to you know, generate an, an uh, some sort of evidence that those conversations were fruitful, that it wasn't just like shouting at each other all the time, that there became some sort of consensus. And so um, I'm not sure how to recognize those conversations that are in servers, but if those conversations lead to, hey, we did this workshop because we thought this was really important, um, those that's still the currency of the realm. I, I don't really know where we can have the recognition of of those sort of conversations just yet i'm not saying it doesn't exist i i I just i'm i'm still working i'm working with you here on this one that's interesting because the the formalization of it um to to some degree that sort of eventedness always makes me a little um a little wary because for the most part we do as soon as we become public things tend to get uh, more political, they tend to get more, like there's all kinds of stuff that comes along with that. And there's some value in those private conversations, I think. But I think there's something really interesting about that too, because um, how do you make something evented? Well, it's an awful lot easier on the internet than it used to be, right? We're not flying people around into uh, awful hotels in different parts of the world to try to work together uh, where the Wi-Fi is terrible, frankly. Yeah. Uh, I'm not looking back, looking forward to going back to bad Wi-Fi to talk to people. Uh, it's been nice to talk to people with my Wi-Fi actually functional. Uh, one of the things that COVID has provided us with, I think. Um, so, so one of those ways forward then is to make our conversations more evented um, past the point of something which you're referring to as ephemera and those sort of independent communications. So, you know, if people are deleting their Twitter accounts, which they do, accounts, but their tweets, which they do, that record is gone. But then the job then is to find some way to take those events that are useful or uh, transformative or whatever they happen to be and find some way to make them more concrete so you can refer back to them. Is that sort of where we're going with? Yeah, I, I mean, I that's one way, although I also resist it too, like in that one of the most beneficial things that academics can do is, you know, provide mentorship or, you know, help people who... Um, ask of them of help right and where that works out and uh, there are times and they're like do we have to formalize everything so that they can be counted and and so I think there is some resistance to that as well like 
Um, we want service to be recognized, but sometimes it, it just needs to be broadly. We don't, I, it, again, this, we want, um, there needs, when things are, things need to be like, when there's sort of public, there needs to be some sort of like public accountability, but not everything should be public, I guess. That's the, that's the balance. And, and I think both of those things could be true, right? There's not, one doesn't invalidate the other. Right. So to go back to the, to the conversation with Manila, then we're talking about that sort of personal um, journey of scholarship over a year, when you're going back and doing an end of year sort of review of the work that you're doing. Do you think that his proposal of the autoethnography is something that could get formalized into something that people could use as a way of talking about their research? in a way that could end up on the scholarly side of our tripartite organization? Or do you see that stuff always heading over to service? That's a good question. As somebody who is part of an autoethnography project uh, <laughs> myself uh, some years ago, um, and, and that was a really great project because uh, we had to learn a lot about autoethnography beforehand and we had people we could bounce things off of. And then we, when we wrote it, we all produced a chapter. And I guess the question, you know, it's, it's one of those things, and maybe this is also because I'm on sabbatical. And this is, I'm very, I'm very mindful of like inputs and outputs, right? That I can do lots of reading. I can do, I can take in a lot of information, but I don't get credit for the information I get in. It's it, the, it is, um, I have to produce something at the end of it. And even if it's conversation, even if it's um, uh, being a member of an audience, even if it's just listening and reading, um, that all of that process is absolutely necessary. You need to be part of a conversation, the scholarly conversation. You, you need to listen for a long time to learn and then to speak and then to contribute. Um, it's a journey. And, and so autoethnography, I think helps, helps, it could be very useful for the people from the outside to get a context of, of where their peers are, where do their peers exist? Where is my community? Um, again, this is very dangerous because I've just stumbled onto this idea right now in this moment. Uh, so I've not thought this through, but there's this, this idea that uh, community has to be both ways in that I can uh, say I'm part of a community, but does the community recognize me? And who is your community? And, and what is you, like, where, what group do you follow? What do you believe in? Um, you know, what is, what, what's your stand? And I, and I don't know, and if an autoethnography might be useful for an outsider to understand where their work is relation, in relation to other scholars who may have a different feeling. Um, that's valuable work and, it's, and it would be really valuable whether that's something that they will appreciate because it doesn't give them a number at the end, <laughs> uh, maybe. But I think as an exercise and to give context, I think that would be, I think it would be very useful. So if... I want to go and stay around this idea of the creation of things. I think 50 years ago, the creation of things was something that was rare enough that there was value in doing it in a lot of the times you're doing it. There's a point, I think, 
Um, you look at it with the number of journals that are out there right now. We are talking earlier about how many podcasts there are. Um, at what point should we start valuing the creation of artifacts less because they start to cloud, like if we're just doing it for the artifact, at what point are we clouding the industry rather than supporting it? Like, is there, is there a point in this abundance, this increased abundance where we should be more careful about producing system and encouraging people to do less? I think in some ways, I think in some ways, that would so it would fund so so we're, if we think about it in terms of the 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 tenure process, there are metrics where it's like you're very productive. You've produced, um, you know, twenty articles this year. Um, but there are also metrics that are, um, and I, I think we have to be careful about what we measure because what we ask for is what we get. And I don't think I think we don't want to just ask for numbers. And I and I and I don't I think there is something about if we ask for artifacts, more artifacts, the better. Um, whether that can be curtailed by, uh, you know, um, a review process that says, listen, just give us your, your three best things. They have to be really, really great. Um, and it doesn't, we don't care about numbers. They have to be significant and meaningful. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's what a thesis or a dissertation is, I'm not sure. Um, but I think that is the danger, is that if you, and maybe also because I'm, I'm studying uh, games, we don't want to turn it, if you, if you turn something into a game, people will uh, try to win the game. Absolutely. They will <laughs> um, rather than play the game. Yeah, for sure. And that's a danger. And so I think the, the, the goal is to be a good player to be a good player so if we were going to and i don't i don't want to put you on the spot here but i'll put you on the spot here if we were going to decide what artifacts counted as um scholarship you said you thought about it a little bit so just sort of first draft thinking what kind of artifacts then if you're just gonna i won't hold you to it i'm sure you'll leave some out yeah the kinds of things that you were thinking of when you were thinking about the artifacts that count as digital scholarship, as open scholarship. So I like this idea that the scholarship is, you know, this long conversation, and um, and that we we choose, you know, we choose the people's work that we want to celebrate and carry forward through our own, and the goal, if there is a goal, is. Uh, is to create work that other people will find valuable and bring it forward. And I guess the question is, do we just bring forward our own work and say, this is our own work and it should just be measured? Or do we say, listen, our measurement has to be from the people who value our work, right? Is it, is it the person who said like, you know, you need to find the, the five people who said, yeah, that's, this person's work is, was very valuable to me. This, this work really helped my thinking. Um, it does it become just this, uh, you know, is it, is it personal recommendations? Again, I, this is, I have not really thought this one through. I was very much, I'm more of an artifact person. So uh, this, but I, I, I do wrestle with this idea because you can get very much lost in all of these documents 
And there are many, many, many articles that never get cited. So many articles that never get cited. And there's just so many journals that are constantly being published. And I think part of it is because we, um, we value production over, uh, you know, edit, you know, and I, I, again, what I keep coming back to for me is careful readership. If you have somebody who is a peer review, who, who reads it so carefully, who helps you with your work, um, whatever metric, whatever system that we use, I think we need to find peer review as valuable. And if there's more ways of saying, you know what, um, that that work was, uh, instead of your authorship, you were judged by your peer review, we would have much better peer review. <laughs> <laughs> There's an interesting community piece underneath what you're saying, um, where somehow the cultivation of our scholarly communities is a big part of the work we need to do. And that you could almost have like a group statement on a group's work, right? Like if you, if you find a community of people who are finding a certain amount of work valuable, somehow their joined statement review of the work is more valuable than one person just talking about it themselves. Um, ah, some interesting models in there. Anything else before we were at about half an hour, anything else you want to add at the tail end? Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that these, the, that last train of thought very much came from uh, yesterday. I just read uh, an article that was uh, actually recommended to, by a colleague of mine on Twitter for all the Skullcom librarians. So I read it and it was an article in the Atlantic about the problems in sort of the scientific literature. And it was all about um, the, it was somebody by someone who was looking at all the research about ivermectin and the poor scholarship and said, there's not enough careful review of this research and this has consequences, fundamental, as we know, um, that could uh, upend the sort of our faith in the scientific process. So I do, that's why it's been heavily on my mind is this idea that um, we need more careful review. So this, this author was saying, look, we, we reviewed these works and we found this journal had a higher statistical average, like was very likely didn't, you know, essentially forge the numbers. And we sent it to the editor and we got no response because we're not part of the process. The paper's already been published. What is this? Uh, what is the role of, of people reviewing work after the fact? And review again is maybe it's just because I've, I've blogged for so many years and I was always reluctant to, to work in scholarship until I realized that I could have somebody carefully read my work and give me suggestions and make it better. And that's just been the best feeling. So I'm, I'm, that's, that's totally made me rethink uh, peer review. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm thinking that community part is, is a strong, it's a hard one um, because so much of us, uh, when you're a young scholar or just young, starting any sort of new thing, is finding your community. Mm -hmm. And so much of that's just luck, too. And much of it is just luck. But where do we get community? We get it community through services like Twitter. Yep. Just, I would try to bring it full circle here. <laughs> uh, no, and this, again, we're not looking to solve any problems today. We're just, it's an ill structured problem. Like, there's no answer to this question. It's one okay. of those things that we need to sort of, I think, I'm, I'm hoping to help move the conversation along a little bit 
broadly and answer some of my own questions about this too. You brought up an awful lot of things today that, that I'm going to walk away with. Um, just that idea of ephemera, we had that conversation early on about that difference between what counts as service, what counts as scholarship, your idea of the archive and that the artifact and what that means and like almost a relationship to the effort, right? So having the idea is one thing, the effort to put it down, the effort to have it reviewed, the effort to make it better, the effort to find a place for it and a home for it. I think part of the message I'm getting here is so much of the difference between writing and scholarship is effort, um, right? And I think there's there's something valuable in that part of the conversation too. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much. Today. This is excellent, thank great. you. And I look forward to continuing this conversation.